interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of West Star scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hey everybody, Jordan here. We've got a special episode of Interrupted for you this time. Uh, A little while ago, we published an episode called Christianity Interrupted, and that was a roundtable discussion among a bunch of Westar scholars and practitioners, and we were talking about the book After Jesus Before Christianity, with a focus on the concept of Christian origins. As some of you might know, Interrupted's other producer and host, Matt Baker, is also involved with a podcast called War Machine. War Machine is a podcast at the intersections of religion, theology, philosophy, art, literature, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, If you are up for discovering a new podcast, I encourage you to take a look in the description of this episode for the link, uh, or to search for it on whatever podcast subscription platform you use. You'll find it in all the usual places. The episode of Interrupted You're About to Hear is a discussion between me, Matt, and then the other two hosts of War Machine, Justin Levitt-Pearl and Petra Carlson. Um, Petra also happens to be a co-chair of Westar's seminar on God and the Human Future. So this is a crossover episode between these two podcasts. The four of us take our points of departure from that previous episode, um, Christianity Interrupted. So if you haven't heard it yet, uh, it might be a good idea to go back and give it a listen. If you haven't done that and you want to jump right into this one, that's all right, too. Uh, We do a bit of summarizing in here, so I don't think anyone will be too lost if you haven't heard the other one yet. Um, But having said all that, I hope you enjoy this new episode and maybe you discover a new podcast you might like. One last thing I want to mention is that all four of us on this episode today are also involved with something called the Radical Theology Seminar. Uh, If you are interested in the kinds of things that we're talking about, if you're interested in radical theology, death of God theology, um, kind of the cutting edge of theological work, you might want to check that out um, over at patreon.com slash radical theology, where you can get access to seminars on radical theological topics by a bunch of the world's leading experts uh, in that field. Uh, Mine is actually going to be coming up uh, in another couple weeks on political theology. I encourage you to check that out. All right. Uh, Again, this is Interrupted Meets War Machine. Thanks. I think Jordan's here. Hi, everybody. Hey, bud. Hello. Uh, sorry, everyone. I uh, got my wires crossed and totally spaced on the meeting, so I can join you for a little bit here by phone while I'm in the car. Your timing is good because we were just about to start. So would you do the honor since you're here and uh, introduce Westar to the War Machine audience and kind of set up what we're doing here? Sure. Um, so welcome, everybody. Um, Thank you for joining us for this follow-up conversation to the um, Westar Interrupted Roundtable on Christianity Interrupted, a conversation about Christian origins centering around the recent Westar publication, After Jesus Before Christianity. Um, We are joined by our illustrious colleagues, uh, Petra Carlson and Justin Levitt-Pearl, Um, both of whom are uh, kind of tangentially connected to all manner of things being done in a radical theology world. Um, Matt, Justin, Petra, and I have worked on a number of projects together over the years, uh, and so it is only fitting that today... (laughs) (laughs) It's a good good cliffhanger. (laughs) 
<laughs> should I, should we just finish the thought form or do you think I'll back in? <laughs> it's only fitting today that we join forces for this amazing crossover episode where we'll be responding to the recent episode of West Star Interrupted. And so, yeah, that's what we're going to do today is just respond to the comments that were made in that roundtable discussion. Um, for the West Star audience, just to give a sense for what War Machine is all about, this isn't something I've really thought a lot about, but I, I guess I might try to summarize it by saying it's a, it's a podcast for theological nomads. I think our uh, collective interests uh, between Justin and Petra and I are, are fairly eclectic. And, and I think that the show reflects that in many ways. So we, we talk about technology, culture, spirituality, politics, esotericism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we've talked to people like Tim Ingold, Saul Newman, uh, Eric Davis, uh, Petra Carlson was a guest previously, but yeah, the conversations, the questions that are raised in that space are, are really formative for me. One of the things that's important for me is that it's, it's an experimental space where, where really nothing is off limits. And yeah, I don't, I, I think that's important. Petra, Justin, do you guys want to add anything to that? It's your show too now. <laughs> oh, but I thought that was beautiful. I think what I like about that show is that, you know, we just follow we follow our hearts in whoever we want to we want to invite and that also i think uh, reflects uh, the way in which uh, we want to do theology which means that it's also always changing yeah no i think that's right i think the collaborative aspect is is important too and and the constructive aspect and that's something that we're we're doing together and I don't really have anything to add other than that. Uh, I know we've got some exciting uh, guests lined up coming up soon. So keep an eye out on the podcast because uh, there's, there's much fun to be had in the future. Cool. Well, hopefully Jordan will be able to jump back in. I see he's still on here, but he's still uh, I'm here. But, uh, you know, who, who knows what's happening with my signal? <laughs> so uh, let's well, proceed. Let's proceed. Is there anything else you want to uh, say about Westar before we get going? Uh. No, I mean, I, I just think that this uh, this spirit of both collaboration and of this open, eclectic, wandering, interest-driven content uh, makes for a really nice match. Amen. Um, Justin and Petra, while uh, while my signal is is strong at the moment, anyway, um, I, I wanted to ask you first and foremost, just coming at this from. Uh, an old-fashioned radical theology perspective. Um, I wondered what you both thought the death of God has to do with Christian origins. I think it has everything to do with Christian origins. <laughs> what do you mean, does? Uh, so a few of us had a conversation uh, a couple of days ago for which I, I returned to Altizer and uh, his book with Hamilton. And in there, uh, it is precisely the idea of the origin as historically situated that Altizer leaves behind by way of William Blake. Uh, and I, I thought of that a lot while listening to this conversation, because what Altizer finds so liberating in, in William Blake is precisely the right to create mythology and to create new myths and not only the right to do that but even to uh, interpret Christianity uh, as demanding that as the kind of eschatological kind of forward moving uh, and 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 that was something that I thought was present in different ways in this in this conversation but there is still as, as in every kind of Christianity setting you're kind of haunted by by this, by the origin, and by the need to claim the origin, and to say that this is what what it was like in the beginning. It was like this complete multiplicity in the beginning. So therefore, we can blame multiple today. And I, I find that that tension just highlights the need for the death of God. <laughs> I think the death of the origin. Yeah, my thoughts went to exactly the same place. So, you know, we both have that Tuesday night <laughs> on the mind because literally like my notes here are like, all ties are on Blake. Talk about that. Um, and, and I think that's exactly right, because to me, at least, I think there's there's a tension and not necessarily like a like a bad tension, maybe a constructive tension. But I think there's a tension in a project um, around something like after Jesus um, before Christianity in the sense that it seems to be wanting to kind of do two things at the same time, um, which is to 
construct, uh, you know, a myth in some ways to construct an origin for itself. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there seemed to be a big interest in the uh, in the seminar with, you know, the idea of like deconstructing origins or something along those lines, or, or like you said, Petra, the, the multiplicity of origins. So I thought there was a bit of a tension about what does looking backwards mean in this instance when you can when you have something like after Jesus before Christianity? Um, is it an attempt to construct an origin for a certain kind of Christianity, which at least some of the speakers, that seemed to be the direction they were going. They wanted a different kind of Christianity, but it isn't totally clear to me what this origin is like. Right. Is this is this the are they constructing the the origin myth for you know, Westar Institute Christianity or for an activist Christianity or for a post-theist Christianity, that remains somewhat unclear to me. And I think that would be an interesting question is to try to pull apart what origin is being built here. Yeah, I think what you guys are saying really came through uh, things that a couple of different people said, um, but I think it was Celine, the last speaker, who, mm -hmm. who, who it comes through um, most directly and most forcefully. And she says, as I take it, you know, like, hey, let's not get carried away here with thinking that we've nailed down the story of Christian origins. Right. And I think she's um, to your point, I think she's talking about the, the inherent, maybe even necessary mythological dimension of, of origins and of constructing origins. And, you know, and rather than seeing that as a, a problem to be overcome uh, you know, maybe instead thinking about, and being conscious of the, the implications for that today. And so, like, there's a responsibility to remain conscious of the story that we're, that we're telling and for what purpose we're telling it. And, and that the story we will ultimately tell will produce certain effects in the world and in the communities that take up those stories. Yeah, I also uh, her what she said also stuck with me because I, I was also kind of writing down that but what if, you know, in the radical theology movement, we've been kind of so caught up with killing daddy kind of thing and also <laughs> then killing killing the origin. But what if Christianity, what if we would just embrace the fact that Christianity seems to be the religion of the origin and that just keeps resurrecting? And I mean, if we would kind of affirm and embrace that, we could also like let it resurrect in as many ways as possible. You know, it's kind of excess and and uh, uh, multiply. Uh, mm. I, I thought that, that was something that I, I'm not sure she said something along, along those lines, but yeah, that was also combined, I think, with the community, with Hans pointing in the community, as in this is something that is actually alive. And so, and uh, yeah, I'm just seeing this as like, what if we would allow the creation of a beginning in every now kind of thing, and it would be a different origin in every every time we retold it. Or, or reading uh, the Christian emphasis of, on origins back over against the Trinity. Um, in in some ways, the the Christian emphasis on origin is an overemphasis on God the Father, mm. um, and and one of the things that death and Pentecost uh, in the other persons of the Trinity do for us is give us um, kind of conclusion and closure and then renewal as well, um, kind of new creativity. And so maybe it's not origin uh, so much as it is this creative process that turns back over against on itself and creates anew. This does remind, you know, reminds me I was doing uh, with with some religious education work. I was doing a sort of an introduction to the religions of the world. And we were talking about uh, Hinduism and and talking about, you know, some of the constructive work that's been done uh, comparing the the sort of dissemination of the Godhead in Hinduism to something like the, the Christian notion of the Trinity. And but what I think is really interesting is there are places where you can map on really well there. Right. You know, you can map on, you know, uh, uh, you know, Brahma to the to the the father, maybe something like that. There's there's this emphasis on creativity there. Um, but what the Christian Trinity doesn't have is like we don't have a Shiva. Right. We don't have a destroyer. Um, and so we have to find other ways of thinking about how change and destruction can come out of this 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 sort of thinking through the Godhead. Yeah, yeah. right. And maybe that that's where the the collaborative work of community comes in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but also the Trinity. So, I mean, it, it, we have a schizo God. 
it's a god with three personalities. So I mean, I, I I think that they're quite opening for both destruction and I mean, in yeah, if you read it that way. Yeah, it's it's interesting because on one hand, and this maybe is related to the 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 idea of origins. Um, multiplicity is built into the Godhead, but yet these are all subsumed by the one. And I think it's always. Uh, as you're saying, it's the story. If Christianity is a story of origins, how is that to be understood, right? As because as as Justin was saying, you know, it, yeah, it's easy just to kind of read multiplicity, plurality, etc., back into the these sort of founding narratives, but there's that tension there, um, mm. and and there's the possibility of like unwittingly repeating the logic that you're trying to escape from mm. um, in the first place. And yeah. I think this is really yeah. built into the kinds of work that that come out of of Westar in the in the sense that it's it's this very sort of historically driven work. And, you know, within biblical like historical criticism and, and things along those lines, you know, there is a tension, I think, here between history and construction. So you have somebody like, uh, you know, Dale Martin, for example, who really pushes this very constructivist reader response approach, you know, that says we have to take responsibility for how we read text. So he's thinking, you know, particularly in uh, you know, reading queerly, for example, he wants to say, if you read the text and you find homophobia, um, it's because you're you're reading homophobia in here and you have to have some responsibility. But on the other side, there's another approach that says, well, no, no, we need to take seriously the context and the history of what's coming. And I think that this tension between a sort of reader response approach to origins and this, no, there's a history there that with proper methodology we can get to. Uh, I think these are both present within this sort of textually driven approach that I think is represented in something like the Christianity seminar or the Jesus seminar. Which brings in the Christ and God seminars uh, in that there's also, you know, what, once you peg down your historical methodology, whether it's either of those options or something else, mm -hmm. then what do you do with it theologically? What do you do with it in terms of meaning? What do you do with it in terms of, you know, political implications? I think that's a great point. I think, if I'm remembering right, Matthew picked up on that a little bit too. Like, right. It's not just a, a it, it, equally important is paying attention to the, to the methods by which these narratives get constructed, right. Whether they're textual or archeological. And I thought that was really important, right. The question there of who speaks, who has authority to, uh, to speak in those instances. One of the, one of the things that was interesting about him too, is like, he seems to have some idea of the way that indigenous thought could inform or, or intervene in the production of these, these kinds of stories. And I wish he had, you know, said more about it. Um, but Petra, you know, him. You, you're co-chairs with him, right? I am. Yes. And I also feel I want to ask him more about that because we never had uh, quite the chance to, to fully elaborate on that. But I, yeah. I think um, we were also planning a narrative uh, session or a narration se session. So I think it is also for him, um, I mean, being inspired uh, by indigenous ways also when it comes to method and the way in which storytelling has also different kind of epistemological consequences in, in indigenous settings, mm -hmm. uh, which um, I can just imagine that as a kind of uh, possible liberation from which is which I mean which is so difficult to 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 create in 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 the history of Christianity since it's so loaded with the expectations of uh, our grand, grounding narratives being actually true uh, or being actually historical or being like a, a biological arising from the dead or so uh, whereas the storytelling in an indigenous setting can have doesn't have make those the same kinds of claims which would then also open for different ways of using storytelling but yes i, I would also like i want to ask matthew more about that <laughs> i was also thinking about um ellie i think she kind of came out as a radical theologian i i <laughs> you know what i think you might be right yeah i think she maybe she should go over to to the dark side <laughs> What stuck out to you, Petra, in what Ellie said? Hmm. Oh. <laughs> I think she's going to try to come back in. And there were three. Sorry, we'll, we'll wait because she was about to answer Jordan's question. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking while we wait for Petra, um, I've been thinking about um, 
a, a Native American myth that I, I've worked with on a on a project about um, the Canadian indigenous movement called Idle No More, which kind of was was moving across Canada. Uh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now. That is, you know, it's connected to movements like the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street and the uh, the Spanish student movement and kind of other decentralized movements of the early part of the last decade uh, and really focused on land back um, and indigenous rights and things like that in Canada. Um, but there's a, there's a particular creation myth that I um, was working on regarding a project about Idle No More that is a, uh, it's an earth diver creation myth. But the way that the storyteller that I was reading begins, the, the creation myth is that it's the seventh creation. Um, it's the seventh world that we're on. Uh, and so even the, the, the idea that it is a creation myth and somehow original, but it begins in the middle of things, mm. <laughs> um, struck me as remarkable, you know, coming from a, a more Christian perspective where origin is or original. You know, yeah, it's wonderful. It's kind of like this conversation. I mean, when when did this conversation start? What was that the interrupted event that we're talking about, or was it like you know you can backtrack for 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 soda and still we say like no, welcome. Yes, yeah, yeah, and the same is true. I think of of endings. Yes, yeah. So you were about to say why uh, you think Ellie is coming out as a as a radical theologian. Yeah, I think it had to do with the fact that I thought she uh, kind of started where, where we started our conversation now, uh, namely the question of killing the origin as such, ki- killing God as such, when when she uh, turned to Harnack's reading of the Bible and the way in which uh, he kind of very thoroughly, of course, and very convincingly as well, uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm a Lutheran Lutheran minister, so I, I know my my heart well enough <laughs> to say that he does it well. But what he does is to prove, you know, the Lutheran faith as the true faith. Um, and then she she compared that with uh, Loisy's uh, uh, response uh, and his defense then of of Catholic faith, but turning into. Well, just basically saying that, well, Christianity is what appears as Christianity, because Christianity is the church in the sense that, uh, well, and the church is what what we make. Uh, When we call ourselves Christian, then we create Christianity. And so it always will be. And and that, I thought, was different from some of the others Mm. by kind of clearly addressing and going directly to the problem of of the theme itself, namely uh, the the origin, the the idea of an origin as such, yeah, uh, as authoritative. No, I I completely agree with that, and I I was really drawn to what Ellie had to say as well. Um, I I wasn't familiar. I'm the, I don't really know Harnack, and I don't remember who the other person is, but I really appreciated that sort of um uh the contrast that she made the the, the competing metaphors. Um, for for Christian origins, you know the kernel and the husk, and then the living tree. I think I side with her in you know taking a position against Harnack on that. Like a, a, between those two choices, the the tree metaphor is better. But it's still the idea that like you can recapture the original seed, and this is like a a move that I think is made by a lot of like more progressive leaning Christians, which is kind yeah. of ironic, right? Because that, that desire to return to some orig- original message strikes me as one that's deeply conservative, but I really do love the invitation that she makes saying, Hey, let's think of a new metaphor. I think that's a great yeah. way to, fr- to frame the, the problematic that she's kind of getting out there. Yeah. yeah that was also the McFaig uh, reference. Who, who was it that brought in McFaig? The idea of Ma- Matthew did some Matthew studied with Sally McFaig. Yeah, uh, like not not taking a narrative away before you have another to offer. Um, um, I, so I'm going to have to get off here in, in a couple minutes, but I want to do seed uh, something in the conversation before I, I have to go. Um, I was also struck by the way that the conversation around origins shifted into a conversation around uh, different models of family, uh, mm. chosen family and queer family and things like that. Um, 
and what what came to mind for me uh, around that stuff is the handful of times I've taught the Communist Manifesto to undergrads, um, how much they get hung up on the passage around abolishing the family as a property relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that that seems to um, almost in in like the the sense of a conservative talking point, uh, it kind of unmoors the world. Um, like society collapses when you don't have the nuclear family anymore. Um, and so I, I was wondering uh, what you all made of the of the conversation around family, uh, and specifically what that um, why that is such a um, uh, a revolutionary notion that there could be queer family or chosen family that uh, you know undoes these more traditional notions. I I, th- I think yeah, this is something that jumped out to me as well. So as as you know, Jordan, but as as the listeners don't know, I've been working for quite a while on a text um, looking at particularly the Gospel of Luke and the anti-family rhetoric that Jesus employs throughout the Gospel of Luke. And you know, I think at the the root of this resistance, right, this unmooring, I think goes back to you know, as as Jordan said, the idea of the origin really emphasizes the father in Trinitarian terms. And I think in the same way, so, so to challenge the origin is often perceived as challenging, you know, challenging the Godhead, right? You are, you're disrupting the, the center of the Godhead in the same way. I think that um, when we, when we challenge the family, right? What, what are you actually challenging? I think you're, you're challenging a patriarchal notion of what it means to be a family and how that family is constructed. And it's constructed through hierarchies and lineages, right? And so it is all about passing down what has been inherited uh, along, along generally patrilineal lines, whether we're talking literally or whether we're talking metaphorically. And when you have, you know, in, uh, the, in the earliest sort of Jesus communities, what would become Christianity, when you have these communities that are gathered along this this more of this found family approach, then all of those lines are, are broken and they are busted up, right? You've got these people that are gathering together. They're pulling in people through these sort of horizontal relations rather than vertical relations. Um, and... Uh, and and the result is that you you can't you can't mark out those lineages in the same way, right? I think this is why so much work within conservative thoughts is built around things like apostolic lineages, right? They want to reconstruct a a version of the patriarchal. Uh, descent narrative, but you know now we can trace it through Peter rather than Dad, um, and and that becomes the way of of reconstructing this very patriarchal heterosexual notion of the family back into a community that at its birth was not really that, or at least some research seems to suggest that it was not really that. Well, that's really interesting. I never I never thought about that. That uh, that just strikes me as as true when you say it. Mm. I, uh, and, but I, but I also think uh, I mean this is always uh, difficult difficult to kind of compare cultures. But I also think or assume or sense that possibly the questioning of the nuclear family uh, is even more. You know, I, I live in a more or less post-communist country, I think, at least compared to to your to where you're living. So in my culture, you know, when the, the idea of equality between men and women has been so strong so that you leave your kids at, at daycare centers when they're one year old and, and then you take like equal amount of time at home and, and you keep like your friends separate so that uh, it's not like I, I always when I encounter uh, American couples I feel that they're so good friends <laughs> it's like oh, is that your best friend <laughs> the one you're married to um, I, and, and <laughs> I think maybe uh, no comment that, uh, so, and yeah, so I'm, I'm just sensing that maybe I think that your culture is perhaps more kind of uh, um, based or Founded in, in the kind of family life, and and that yeah, that also differs from kind of from the the Russian culture, for example. The family isn't as important in Russian culture as it is in American culture. So I'm I'm thinking that it could also be be uh, challenging in the, in an American setting in a way that it isn't in in every setting. Uh, although I mean, of course, the 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 idea of not uh, like helping your family first or 
or inheritance or I mean that that is that is a very challenging notion everywhere I guess and this is where another place where I think like a uh, a diverse methodology is really helpful right because there's you know um there's a, a myth, I think, right? You know, we're talking about myths here that says that, you know, the traditional, the nuclear family that we have is the traditional family, right? That it goes back to Victorian times and it goes back, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it goes back to Adam and Eve, right? Um, but of course, we know that this is is not true uh, for a number of reasons. We know archaeologically that it, it wasn't true in the past. We know it wasn't true in the first century. We know it wasn't really true in the medieval world. And in fact, the like uniquely American obsession with the nuclear family um, is really really something that emerges in the 1970s. It is a narrative that is constructed in the neoconservative response to the Cold War and that they were looking for a way to get the neoconservatives uh, and the neoliberals to play well together. Uh, and they finally agreed that the, the solution was families, right? Because the neoconservatives wanted a strong father, you know, to save America from all of the, the gays and the women's who are getting rights and, uh, and, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you have that approach for the neoconservatives. And then the neoliberals, they just wanted to be rich and to get richer. Um, and what they realized was. Uh, we don't need a we don't need a thick welfare state if we can push all of that financial responsibility back onto families and away yeah. from the state. And so you have, you know, Melinda Cooper has a great book on this called Family Values about how the neoconservatives and the neoliberals basically make a pact in the 70s. We're going to use the, we're going to construct a notion of family. We're going to retroject it into history and we're going to use this to destroy the welfare state. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. And, and I, I mean, I think that that. Uh, that goes directly to uh, to show precisely what you said that the idea, I mean, Jesus is always the idea of of breaking with the nuclear f- or the family and kind of leaving your brothers and sisters uh, behind and so on. Who's my mother and who's my brother and sister? Or that has always been been challenging. But I definitely think that the way in which it challenges uh, culturally is so different and has been through the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not something that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, certainly not as much as, as you, Justin, but as you were talking, I, was, I couldn't help but think about like like a Jordan Peterson, right, who makes these appeals to hierarchy through arguments that are, they're either naturalistic or or mythological. Uh, and ultimately, both of those are mythological, right? Because the naturalistic appeal is also a myth. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and so and that, that's part of the critique of, I think, of this project too, right? The, the uh, the archaeological uh, dimension of um, getting at uh, origins, but uh, I, I I do sort of appreciate the way that that idea of kinship kind of denaturalizes the notion of family in a way that kind of breaks up whatever that conception is, and I and I, and I I'm sort of just intuitively connecting this to the the anti-imperial thrust of some of the things that were being talked about and and, and the connection. Uh, between, uh, well, on one hand, uh, Christ and Caesar, right? These are sort of uh, posed uh, in, in the Gospels as opposing forces implicitly or explicitly. Um, but then, you know, you have your father in heaven and then you have your father in Rome. Um, and so the anti-imperial messaging is still inherently patriarchal. So it's like the tools of liberation ha- themselves have to be decolonized. Yeah, I, I really reacted to that. Uh... The anti-empirical talk, I, and it uh, connects to uh, a lecture that was held at my my school a couple of days ago, uh, where I just found that I heard one time too many the idea of of Jesus being opposed to the emperor and that kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, good guy depiction of Jesus and 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 Christ, and as if it is as if. Uh, I mean, even though uh, no matter how much we can critique Christianity, we will always need to save Jesus and we'll always leave Jesus as as the good guy and the anti-empire. There was someone, uh, though, I I don't recall who that was. Was that Celine or was it Ellie or someone said at least that we must remember that even I mean, that there is no origin that stays free of of. Uh, the empire kind of uh, kind of will to power every instance of of wanting to create something also uh holds a seed of 
the oppression and the seed of wanting to build an empire. That is kind of a built into a, a creative kind of force. Uh, and so trying to, to free uh, Jesus or the early Jesus movement from from uh, such tendencies, I think it's just uh, just risks. We just risk fooling ourselves, and also then, of course, to to create ideas of of us being able to form communities that will be free of of uh, that kind of uh, oppressive uh, tendencies. Or yeah, yeah. I, I think it's not a coincidence, right? That this 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 project is picking up after Jesus, right? Yeah, uh, in the sense that. That in some ways it 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 can allow a rereading, but it can you can keep Jesus as that as that seed as that ultimate origin in some yeah. sense, um, which I think is something that sort of liberal or conservative, theologically speaking, not politically though. I guess also that you know we all want Jesus, and I don't know what to do with this desire to hold on to Jesus as as the hero of the story because on the one hand. What if we do some good historical work, right? And we find out that Jesus was a dick, um, you know, like that's possible. You know, we have <laughs> yeah. at least one narrative where Jesus seems to be pretty racist. Um, so how do we deal with that, those sorts of narratives? Um, but on the other hand, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by Ricoeur, who said that there are certain sorts of pivotal figures where rather than um, figuring out how they fit in relation to you, it is always about moving them in relation to yourself, right? So the three he has are... Um, I think it was Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. Uh, and so you're right, no matter no matter who you are on the left, Marx always agrees with you. If you're a Trotskyist, then Marx was a Trotskyist. You know, if you're a Leninist, then Marx was a Leninist. If you are a democratic socialist, then he was a democratic socialist. It is by rereading the founder that you construct your own position. Um, and, and, you know, you see the same thing in psychoanalysis with the constant rereadings of Freud. And so part of me is... Uh, frustrated by this, the, yeah. the idea of Jesus being this forever seed. But part of me also wonders if Jesus just becomes in some sense, like an empty signifier and that yes. it is the task of every theologian to mm -hmm. reconstruct Jesus in such a way that it makes sense of their own theology. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm completely sympathetic to the, that tension there. And I, I think this is like one of the things that Julia picks up on, right? She starts off by saying how the, uh, how the earliest communities were diverse. Christianity today is diverse. So there's this this holding up this foregrounding of of, of diversity, you know, as com as contrasted with this idea uh, sometimes that Christianity, as she says, I think Christianity is Christianity is Christianity, and that that's like a imperial logic. It's the logic that Constantine would want, and you know, I it's too, I think that uh, that's true in, in in as much as that speaks to a perspective that is intolerant of differences. Um, but I think this is also a, like you're saying, Justin, it's in itself is a safe story. And, and it, I don't think it holds up to scrutiny. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I consider myself in some important sense, a, a Jesus follower myself. And, you know, but I think what that means is really up for debate. And I guess what I'm com uncomfortable with is how the, the discussion of diversity and the talk about imperial logic is, is immediately followed upon by the idea that what it means to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. Again, I'm sympathetic to it, but I don't think it holds up to scrutiny. And it, it again, re, unwittingly repeats the logic that it wants to distance itself from. And maybe I'm being ungenerous there. I'm not I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think it's at least worth investigating. Right. Because in some ways, Jesus then becomes the father figure. Right. He didn't. He, he's this, you know, seemingly celibate. You know, there's debates around this, but seemingly the celibate guy. Uh, but nonetheless, he gives birth. And what he gives birth to is the church. So he becomes the ultimate father. So even if we are comfortable wanting to talk about the way that the early church broke from these, these sort of patriarchal narratives uh, and disrupt origins there. In some ways we backdoor a patriarchal narrative into, yep. into our logic when we say, but of course it ultimately goes back to Jesus. Who's right. the, you know, he's, he's the secret patriarch behind all of this. Um, right. And so I guess for me, the question is what does it look like when we move that that step one one step further backwards and begin to also place that into question and and i don't have an answer um i don't know <laughs> but i think it's an interesting question i mean if if it is so as you say uh i mean with, with the, that reference uh, and justice to to uh, uh ricard or or and or the use of marks i mean if jesus then is a kind of blank canvas on which we can paint our ideal 
uh, human or person. And that I also now started thinking about these, you know, there are these uh, some scholars that have uh, found evidence of the early Jesus movements uh, using images of, of a breastfeeding Jesus. Uh, like, come come to me, all of you who are thirsty or whatever is <laughs> the English translation of that. Um, and and uh, that, that would, and there are also these old images of, of Jesus as breastfeeding, uh, which of course uh, then opens for, for all kinds of interpretations. And, and, and you can just kind of project that image or whatever image you find onto the canvas. And then you, you create your, your kind of perfect figure. And, and I guess, yeah, there is a, there's a huge, uh, Kind of constructive uh, possibility there that maybe only these kind of figures allow that kind of space for thought. Uh, maybe we wouldn't have the possibility of projecting the perfect uh, or ideal person or whatever uh, anywhere if we didn't have them. Maybe we need Jesus in that sense. Although I, I still think he's kind of a soft patriarch, but. Right. Well, yeah, no, I think, I think the, the, maybe the point in, in here, and this is uh, going back to where we started in a way is we can't live without mythology <laughs> of one kind yeah, or exactly. of one kind or another. So one piece, this is a bit of a jump, but since it seems like we're in a little bit of a, a, a pause here, I wanted to go, to go in, in just a slightly different direction, which was, uh, I think it was Matthew who, who started to talk about something and then moved on to the main topic. And I was like, go back and talk about that. Um, so uh, he was talking for a bit about um, the residential schools, mm-hmm. um, which I found, and he, he made this really interesting point. He said that it is only now that we're, we can use ground penetrating radar that we can discover the victims of, of these residential school genocides, despite the fact, of course, that, you know, the indigenous populations have known about this forever and have constantly been talking about it, but it's through ground penetrating radar that it is suddenly has come to, um, to wider attention. And, and he met, and, and then he made this, this quick comment. He said, you know, ground penetrating radar, the same thing that we use for both resource extraction and biblical archeology. span Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I thought that little triad of like discovering victims of genocide, resource extraction and biblical archeology span was really interesting. And it, and it felt like a kind of like a new materialist moment. Yeah. And so I just wanted to take a moment to, to talk a little bit about what this method means, right? Because there's, I think there are, there's something really interesting here with ground penetrating radar um, being used for the residential schools. But I think there's also things that are very concerning around this, right? You know, why is it only when it is, you know, quote unquote scientific that we have yeah. the radar yeah. that these narratives can be, can be disseminated among Western audiences. Yet when, you know, it, these, uh, you know, first nations folks in, uh, in Canada have been saying for decades that this happened, uh, uh, and, and those narratives got completely brushed aside because well, it wasn't scientific yet. Yeah, that, that was the, the point I was trying to get at earlier with talking about the question of who speaks. And I think you're kind of raising in, in, a, in, a, in a better way than I did in making this contrast between what kind of discourse is credible. Um, on one hand, you have empirical um, scientific data and, and suddenly th- these stories, uh, the experiences of indigenous people that they've been talking about for a long time suddenly become credible. So yeah, who gets who gets to speak and when and why? No. Isn't it also uh, the idea of being able to see through? Mm. Uh, I mean, to to see and to see through. That's kind of the 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 modern kind of dream. The Western modern dream is kind of to see through to the inner self, or or to to see through to the nuclear of, of, well, the earth or, or reality and to be able to, uh, well, to see things for what they are, to understand the objects or, or even kind of nuclear kind of science. Uh, and that I think goes along with the entire idea of seeing through to the true self and, and um, the uh, psychoanalytic tradition in that sense, uh, which also can be backtracked to, to of course to to the Christian again notion of of the origin and the dream of access to the origin and that I think 
so, so to me, like, yeah, I, I was also fascinated by, by that. So I'm happy you brought it up, Justin. Uh, and I hope I can ask Matthew to, to expand or explore that. But, but what that, that kind of triad kind of captured at once our dream of being able to understand reality and the ways in which that is so destructive and the ways in with, which that makes us not see uh, all of the kind of different expressions of life that is out there and, and all of the different narratives, uh, like if, if they cannot be measured uh, mm. in, uh, in the way that we measure things, then they are not valid. And if you kind of x-ray them kind of into, into actually being, being uh, so, so that we can make sure they're true, we, we can't respect them. The, the contrast you're making there between, well, I guess we've all been making it in different ways. On one hand, what was it ground penetrating radar, which allows you to see something um, as opposed to, as we were talking about the experiences of indigenous people, which were, which come by way of uh, word of mouth. Uh, so that's an interesting um, difference to think about. And also I think that relates to, to sense and the haptic and the optic kind yes. of seeing the, the the western fixation with with seeing things and with clear sight right. uh, rather than kind of using sensibility and touch and and mm. uh, feeling and knowing with the hands we have that kind of discussion going on in relation to the indigenous people in in the, the nordic countries uh, the sami people which is uh, uh, to be sent a, a wordless kind of culture, but it's a very it's a culture of of a lot of handicrafts and well touch, <laughs> and but it's kind of uh, uh, out. What do you say? The the the, lo the loudness of our culture is just uh, kind of making their silent <laughs> culture stand back and be invisible, silent. <laughs> In in this the the piece that I'm really interested in is the the fact that he chose biblical archaeology as one of the examples. Um, I think is is really interesting and, and really telling in the sense that I think it reveals these questions of origin that we've really been talking about throughout this entire discussion, right? Because biblical archaeology, like why is ground penetrating radar really good? Like you can dig back to the origin, you can get back to what was there, um, and and there's I think there's. In, I don't want to say the only, but in archaeological narrative that is like, you know, this is the real science that can do history, unlike history, which isn't a science um, because it depends on things like stories and word of mouth and these kinds of narratives. Um, but what this brings to mind that I think is really interesting is is more recent work. So I'm thinking of Dawn of Everything uh, with Graeber and Wengro, uh, which I think is a really fantastic text. And they are really reliant on archaeology, but what they do, I think, to a large extent is they they undermine the ideology of archaeology while employing archaeology all the time. So their constant uh, claim throughout this text is there is no origin. What's the origin of inequality? It doesn't exist. What is the origin of the state? There is no origin of the state. What is the origin of patriarchy? There isn't one. That all of these things, are they are way too multifaceted. They are way too complex. They are built on ebbs and flows and contrasts and political decisions and will and all of these things that mean that you can never get back to a starting point and that, uh, and that what they suggest, which I think is really helpful here, is that archaeology itself, if properly read reveals to you the impossibility of the origin. I, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I've been reading that book too, and it just brought to mind now the recent launch of the web, but it telescope, I guess, you know, there's so much excitement about, well, we're going to be able to see 0 0.056 seconds after the big bang. So we're going to know what happened. I'm like, <laughs> it, it just strikes me as a, a similar um, desire to get back. and and listen, I, I I'm agnostic on the question of cos cosmological origins. I, I I tend to fall out on the side that nothing comes from nothing, but I, I think the, the very desire for an answer to that question to, to sort of nail down an origin is uh, is is problematic uh, in and of itself. Isn't it also kind of sweet though, in the sense that? I mean, even if I try to remember the origin of my day today, I, I cannot. <laughs> I, w I know I was there. <laughs> I was in my bed. I woke up. But it's like I, I cannot retell it. <laughs> and like all the, w w what went through my mind. I what barely know it? what I had for what breakfast. Was it? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> like what was that situation and, and, and the kind of levels of presence of like things that I felt I needed to do and things I thought of in the future and then in the past. And, and I mean, that, that it just blows my mind. <laughs> I'm trying to capture any moment. And then, and then as a kind of collective uh, culture, we are still trying to nail down what happened on the cross. Well said. One one of the places, and, and I don't know how to formulate this quite, but where I think these tensions also reemerge are in. Um, so one of the things that that jumped out to me was the uh, I think like half or more of the speakers uh, open their discussion with land acknowledgments, which I think is is really great. Um, but I think that there's also a risk in land acknowledgement of. Um, of recreating the origin of or the myth of the origin in some sense yeah, or, right? or, or ownership. Yeah. So when I'm thinking, for example, you know, uh, if I was to do a land acknowledgement, I might, you know, I might say that I'm on the unceded land of the Honda Nassani. Um, right. But well, how did they get that land? Well, they kind of took it from the Adena culture, right? Like <laughs> they also kind of <laughs> stole it. And then how did they get it? Well, I don't know. I, but I bet you, if you go back far enough, they probably stole it too. Um, and is this to say that therefore, you know, like as colonizers, like that we should not be making these analogies? I want to be really clear. No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is that when, when we want to think about what it means to create justice for the indigenous people of our land, um, uh, I think that we need to ask how do we do that in a way that doesn't rebuild a western origin narrative because i think it's really easy to take take you know indigenous critiques and then reformulate them in western language um right and so it's the, you know it's the idea that they are the origin they are nature whereas we are culture is always the implication there yeah. um and in these sorts of these sort of ways so i think asking the question of how how do we avoid that tendency of constructing these origin narratives even when they are well intentioned when they are or when they are intended to provide justice uh in in this area i think is something that's worth considering as well should we uh, conclude or oh sorry go ahead yeah no so, uh, it's like everything is happening in this room <laughs> what's going what's going on in there right now give me a give me a play-by-play -play. yeah well my my daughter just went out the cat then again wanting to to get in and out like three times and um <laughs> <laughs> and but now she just gave up on getting her ipad working well i think we can stop there maybe unless anyone else has anything else i don't yeah, you need to do some cutting in this episode, but I think it could turn out. Oh, this was a good. This was a good discussion. A slow start, yeah. but we we got going. Jordan's back. Jordan, Jordan's back. About to hey, finish. You, back. You, you want any? Oh, you want any final closing words? Concluding He's, remarks. He has resurrected. All right. <laughs> See, I'm back, but the but the signal sucks. I don't. I can't. I can't help finish. <laughs> <laughs> It keeps beginning. There you go. That's yeah, okay. Yeah, there, 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 we can have no ending because there was also no origin, right? So perfect. Yeah, perfect. And the many origins of Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Forthcoming from Fortress Press. <laughs> That's good. Let's end with let's end with uh, with an ellipse and not a period today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the Westar Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Westar Institute or become a member, visit weststarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.